All right, 2 Kings chapter 11. If you want to turn there in your Bibles with me as we continue our study through 2 Kings together, we're kind of bouncing back and forth between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel. We're at a time in Israel's history where the nation is divided, the ten tribes in the north forming Israel, having a king reigning over them, uh, Judah and Benjamin in the south, having a king reigning over them referred to as Judah. And as we come to chapters 11 and 12, uh, we now go back down into the southern kingdom again, and we see some of the activities uh, that were taking place in the southern kingdom. It tells us in chapter 11, verse 1, that when uh, Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, who we saw just in the last chapter murdered by uh, Jehu, who was the king in the north, Ahaziah was the reigning king in the south over Judah, uh, and Jehu put him to death uh, during the time when he sort of took the throne, was trying to exterminate the relatives and the descendants and family members that had any connection to Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, so it says that when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. So uh, this uh, queen mother, if you would, queen grandmother, recognizes now an opportunistic moment uh, as her own son is murdered. As he's dethroned as the present king, she obviously with a level of pride and ambition, uh, wanting to have some control, wanting to assume the power of the throne, not wanting one of the sons or the descendants to take rulership over the southern kingdom. Uh, it tells us that so ambitious was she for this that in her self-seeking and selfish ambition, it literally says, no mistake there, verse 1, it says what it says, that she destroyed destroyed all of the royal heirs. Now, keep in mind what that's indicating. That indicates that this grandmother basically put to death all of her grandchildren, murdered her own grandchildren in cold blood, making sure that, that she would eliminate any potential male heir so that she then, as the, uh, in a sense, highest ranking female in the family, could now take rulership over the throne. Now, I don't know what you think, but when I look at that, I mean, it's just really hard to envision where a person's heart needs to sink through to. I mean, a grandmother who usually is typically known to want to dote over her grandchildren and gently and, you know, uh, fondly enjoy her grandchildren. This woman is so evil in the intent in her heart, is so self-seeking and full of ambition to want to have power and control that she actually murders her own grandchildren. Uh, you know, this in some ways uh, reminds me, honestly, even as we're uh, looking at this, of uh, really what uh, James speaks about to us in James chapter 3 as he uh, kind of talks about some of these things. Let me just read you the passages that comes to mind. It tells us in, in James chapter 3, uh, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Uh, and here's a manifestation of this in our Old Testament passage, a, a heart that this woman Athaliah had 
where there was jealousy and envy. She wanted to be in control. She wanted to feel what it was like to be in power and rule over the kingdom and rule over the nation. And because there was envy and self-seeking in her heart, uh, one of the most evil forms we could possibly imagine of human behavior takes place. She literally puts to death all of the male heirs. It says destroyed all the royal heirs. But look what happens. God's merciful intervention here. Verse 2 says, uh, but uh, Josheba, the daughter of King Joram and sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years why Athaliah reigned over the land. So there's this very merciful intervention. Here is this, and this is truly an accurate statement, satanic plot where the heart of this woman Athaliah is motivated in her own pride and self-seeking ambition to want to rule over the throne. She begins to make an effort to murder and put to death all of the royal descendants And this godly woman, Josheba, mentioned in verse 2 here, seeks to spare one of the royal heirs, one of Ahaziah's sons. It seems he's around one year old or so at this time or under one. And she takes one of the, the king's sons. This actually would be her nephew if you follow the language there. This is really the aunt. Uh, of this young man who is spared, one of the king's sons. So this is the sister of King Ahaziah who has died, which uh, his mother is trying to capitalize on this time. So this godly woman, Josheba, who we also know in the text, verse 4 is going to tell us she's married to Jehoiada, and Jehoiada is the priest uh, at this time, the high priest. So here this godly woman, this godly aunt, and her husband, Jehoiada the priest, will see recognize what's happening. They find out about this plot. Either they hear about it or they see what's going on and they intervene to spare the life of their nephew. And because they spare the life of this one child, the royal line is spared. It says that they take him and they hide him away with his nurse, the the nanny, the woman who was taking care of him. And it says they put him away so that he wasn't killed. And then verse 3 says that he was then hidden after that in the house of the Lord for a time period of six years while Athaliah reigned on the throne during that time. Now, a couple of things very interesting we see taking place here. First of all, understand that this effort of Athaliah to destroy the royal Line so that she could reign on the throne. I said a moment ago, satanically inspired, because again, keep in mind, the royal heirs is a reference to the Davidic family line. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God promised that through a descendant of King David, ultimately what? The Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior would come. So at this point in time, Satan, as we see it numerous times, and you'll see it throughout the Word of God and the Old Testament passing through, there are numerous attempts of Satan to try and destroy the the royal line and descendancy of David's seed because he's trying to stop the promise of the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer from coming into the world. And here, down literally to one last human descendant, 
at this point in time, and yet God intervenes, moves on the heart of this godly woman and her husband, the high priest, this aunt and uncle. They intervene and they spare this one child. And not only are they sparing a child, but they're actually sparing the messianic line that ultimately would bring about salvation for the whole world. Again, I look at this and I think to myself, nothing has changed from that point all the way to this point. Satan is always trying to do anything he can to try and eliminate the potential of people to be saved. And here we see him trying to murder the family line of David and the descendants that would bring forth Jesus Christ, the Savior and the Messiah, to take away the sins of the world. And in the same way, how wonderful to see, here's just this godly couple who has mercy and who cares about the things of God. And here's this aunt and uncle, this you know godly couple, Josheba and her husband, Jehoiada, and they spare this one child. And by sparing one child, they, at this point, in some ways, probably have no idea the incredible extent of what they're really accomplishing. Here, just because they care enough to say, you know what, please don't put to death that child, we'll take care of him. And because they intervene and they spare one child and invest in one young child, they actually end up fulfilling the will of God to a much greater extent than they could have ever envisioned or imagined as they spare this child. And again, I think it's a good reminder because sometimes God may move on our heart in this simple, small way. And God may say, invest in that one kid or, or do something to help out that one person or one and we think what's and look you have no idea i have no awareness sometimes how huge what we may actually be doing by just sparing one child or investing in one person or doing something to invest in the plan of god in one person's life the the full extent of what we actually may be investing in and so here they spare this young man jehoash we'll see so that he can ultimately become the rightful king on the throne instead of his grandmother who was murdering the rest of his brothers and sisters and all the descendants at this time. And verse 3 says that literally he was, after being put away in a house, then hidden, raised in the house of the Lord. He's then kind of hidden amongst the temple precincts with the other priests and their children and families. And, and this kid is growing up right underneath the nose of Athaliah and she doesn't even realize as this six-month-old over the next six, seven years is growing up with the other children playing that all the while God's preserved the rightful king and has preserved his promise for salvation for you and I. But imagine if you would, however, from verse three, what it says that Athaliah reigned for six years over the land for six years. That means everybody in Judah, perhaps to some degree, because most of them do not know that Josheba and Jehoiada have spared a descendant to be the rightful king. Most of the people in Judah feel like the plan of God has failed. God's word has failed. She murdered all the descendants of David. What are we going to do? God gave a promise and now God didn't keep his promise. And no doubt, I'm sure there were questions in the minds of people and doubts in people's hearts. And I'm sure this was a time where, again, it appeared that God's word had failed, but God's word had not failed. It appeared that God's word had failed. It looked circumstantially like hope was lost and that it was totally just impossible and there was no way and there was probably a sense of disappointment. But the reality was all the while, God had a plan still at work. 
and it was out of everybody's sight. Most people didn't know about it. And here God for year after year after year had a plan in motion. And to most other people looking on, it looked like all hope is gone. Everything has failed. It seems like God's word's not going to come to pass. And probably for six years, it must have been a very difficult, dark six years as people felt like, I guess God isn't going to do it. And they had no idea that it was just a timetable thing, that God had something going on and in waiting and he was going to bring it to pass in time. And you know what? Sometimes in our lives, we can make the same mistake where maybe circumstances appear a certain way like this, where we think, oh my goodness, there's this wicked, godly, hideous woman reigning. I mean, it just seems like evil's triumphing. It doesn't seem like God's in control. It seems like that evil is succeeding and sin is prospering. And it seems like that everything that God could have done has failed and it's hopeless. And sometimes we start to get doubtful and disappointed. Maybe we even feel like that God's word just what well, isn't true and it's not going to come to pass. Listen, don't believe that. <laughs> That's a lie. God's always got something at work. God always has ways of making sure he comes through. The Bible says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. And with God, nothing is impossible. And God, the Bible says, not only that he will not lie, the Bible says God cannot lie. So God's going to fulfill what his word says. His word will never fail. We can rely on it. And sometimes when it looks like his work has failed, don't let yourself grow discouraged just because you can't see it with your eyes. Trust that maybe God has something hidden away that he's been working on and maybe it's taken him four or five, six, seven years to get it ready for the right moment to then bring about what he wants to do and ultimately bring it to pass. So the country has no idea as Athaliah is reigning on the throne, I'm sure this is a miserable experience. They're probably discouraged. Again, obviously this you know, wicked woman is reigning on the throne who's murdered all her grandsons. Well, verse four says, but in the seventh year then of the life of this young man, Jehoiada, that is the priest, the husband, as I said, of the woman Josheba who went and took him and hid him away. In the seventh year, Jehoiada the priest sent and brought the captains of the hundreds of the bodyguards and the escorts, and he brought them into the house of the Lord to him. So the unveiling is now going to happen. Jehoiada recognizes, okay, he's about seven years old. He's you know, got enough of a capability now to talk and to reason to some degree. Again, this is still pretty young, seven years old to take the throne. That's kind of scary too, isn't it? <laughs> Imagine a seven-year-old on the throne. You better hope he has some good advisors around him. <laughs> but he's seven years old. And he's okay. He's at least old enough. We can unveil him as the rightful king now. And at least we can kind of maybe reason out, you know, with a little twinkie negotiation or something. You know, when we make laws or something, we can bring him forth as the rightful king now. So he puts together this plan where he brings in the bodyguards and the Levites and the different captains. And he's bringing them into the house of the Lord. And it says he made a covenant with them and took an oath from them in the house of the Lord. And then he showed them the king's son. So he brings them in. He says, look, you need to make an oath and a covenant that you are committed to God and you're committed to the plan of God. And once they made that oath and he felt he had their, their certain word, he then showed them this is one of the royal heirs. 
And he unveiled and showed them the king's son. I love the language there. It says he showed them the king's son. Where did that happen? It says they were in the house of the Lord. And you know what? I firmly believe that is what God's heart is. I believe in the house of the Lord is where God wants to show us the king's son, Jesus. It's in the house of the Lord that God wants to unveil and reveal to people and show people to greater and greater degrees. This is what my son's like. This is who my son is. I want you to know him for yourself and see him for yourself. And certainly in the house of the Lord, it should be a place where people are able to clearly see the son of the king, Jesus Christ, that God wants to reveal to them. So he now shows them this young seven-year-old, the king's son. In verse five, he then commanded them saying, this is what you shall do in light of this. One third of you shall who come on duty on the Sabbath, the day of worship and rest for the Jews, shall be keeping watch over the king's house. Normal business, he says, what you would typically do. The other third, You shall be at the gate of Sur and the other third at the gate behind the escorts. The idea is kind of just spreading out the ranks to flank different areas for this process of coronating this young man as the king. Verse six, and you shall keep watch of the house lest it be broken down. And then verse seven, the two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath their responsibility, he says, you, you two contingents shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king, but you shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hand, and whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. So again, this was, this was seven years in the making of preservation and protection. And so Jehoiada wants to make sure there's a plan in action and, and you want to talk about like royal ancient secret service. He just wants to make sure he says, look, wherever that kid goes, surround him. And when wherever he's at, whether he comes, goes, he says, wherever he is, wherever he goes out or comes in, you're to stay with him. And if anybody even gets in range, Don't even check their ID. Just take off their head. He said, I want you to protect the king, protect your leader. And it's just a very beautiful picture here again of, look, this is the rightful leader. This is God's leader for you. Whatever it takes for you to keep him safe, protect him, surround him, do whatever you can to make sure that there's no harmful satanic disruption in any way of his life. Jehoiada wants to protect this young man to be coronated as the king. Again, I just love the language so often the Bible uses, though, you are to be with the king as he goes out and comes in. Some translations render that you are to be with the king wherever he goes. Uh, And I love that as we think of that, perhaps even in light of Jesus, because again, this young man was the rightful king. He might've been the rejected king by everyone else at this time, But he was indeed God's rightful king. And you know what? Jesus is God's rightful king. And so it is wise for us in the way that we relate to Jesus, irregardless of how anyone else relates to Jesus, our heart in relating to Jesus as the rightful king should be just like this statement here to stay with him as our king when he goes out and when he comes in, wherever he goes. That should be our primary goal, to be with Jesus wherever he goes. Lord, wherever you're going, that's where I want to (laughs) go. 
And Lord, if you're going over here, that's where I want to be. And if you're going over there, that's where I want to be. And that we would just want our life to be closely connected with Jesus, staying by his side. Verse 9, so the captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest had commanded. Each of them took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath. And they came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest, verse 10, gave the captains of the hundreds the spears and the shields which had belonged to David. So notice now they're being equipped for battle. He gives them these shields and spears that David had stored up many years prior and put into the house of the Lord, these spoils uh, of really of war that were there in the temple of the Lord. And again, I like the picture there. They're being equipped now for the battles that they're going to fight for their king. And again, where they're being equipped with the spears and the shields, where they're being equipped for battle, it says that these things were happening in the temple of the Lord. And you know what? Again, that's also what should be happening to this day still in the temple of the Lord, if you would, in the house of the Lord. This is where we get equipped for battle, for the battles that we fight for our king. We should be equipped and built up. The Bible says, Ephesians 4, that God has even given to the church pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints for works of ministry. And there are battles for us to fight on behalf of our king. And as we go out, we want to be equipped. And the best place to be equipped is in the same way they're being equipped, which is what we receive in the house of the Lord, to be equipped and ready to fulfill our functions and fight those battles. So they're now armed up. They're ready to reveal the king. So verse 11 says, Then the escort stood every man with his weapons in his hand all around the king, surrounding him from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple by the altar uh, and by the altar in the house. And he brought out the king's son. They put the crown on his head, it says, and gave him the testimony. Interesting that the reference there to the to the word of God, the testimony, the law of the Lord. That's what it's a reference to. And I like that as they, as they crown him to be their ruler, the first thing they do is they give this young seven-year-old man a copy of the testimony of the word of God. If you're going to rule us, here's the rule book. Here's the word of God. And they hand this seven-year-old young man as they're coronating him as their king, a copy of the testimony, the word of God itself. And they made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands in celebration, the idea is, and said, Long live the king. Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord, and when she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar according to custom. And I can't imagine what she was thinking at that moment. Uh-oh. Had no idea this was going on. And the leaders and the trumpeters were there by the king and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And, and again, as they're coronating this young man, I have to imagine as I think of you know the, these different contingents of a hundred this way, for six years they've had to serve, as I said, sort of as the bodyguards and the secret service of this wicked evil, nasty woman at the Laia. And they're probably thinking, hallelujah, finally, you know, we can be done with having to work for her and be her bodyguards. And we can actually take care of this young man who's the rightful king and supposed to be on the throne. So no wonder this is a day of great celebration as they're 
proper king is now being enthroned. But when she sees this, Athaliah, look what she says, verse 14. It says, she tore her clothes and she cried out, treason, treason. Now you want to talk about a paradox. Treason? Here she is the one incredibly guilty of treason, but yet now she's crying out treason because they're actually coronating a true royal descendant who was supposed to be one of the heirs to the throne. Verse 15, And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the army, and said to them, Take her outside under guard and slay her with the sword, whoever follows her. For the priest had said, Do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. Wanted to have reverence for the sacredness of the house of God. So they seized her. And she went by way of the horses, the entrance of the king's house, and there she was killed. So at this point, officially, officially now she is dethroned. She's put to death so that she can no longer reign over them because she had usurped the throne. She should not have been ruling over them anyway. And now they dethrone her and they put to death that which was ruling over them that was not good. And again, how did they do it? It says that they put her to death there in verse 15, it says, take her outside, it says, and what did they use? It says they used the sword. They slayed her with a sword. And again, what does the New Testament tell us? It tells us regarding the word of God that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Ephesians 6 tells us that. It tells us in, a, in Hebrews chapter 4 that God's word is living and active, sharper than the double-edged sword. And again, the, the word of God is likened to a spiritual sword that, that cuts out of our lives and puts to death in our lives that which is evil, that which is sinful, that which is, that would, would rule over us in an ungodly, improper way. And so again, when something takes control over my life, that should not be in control in my life. When some you know, attitude or sin or some habit wants to rule over you and usurp the place of the rulership of Jesus and the Holy Spirit from within your life, how do you dethrone that stuff? How do you cut out of your life and rid from your life that which is ruling over you in a wrong way? Well, it's by the sword of the Spirit. It's by taking serious the Word of God. And believing in the power of the word of God, like a double-edged sword to go into your life and to cut out of your life the stuff that doesn't belong there. And really to put to death and to slay the sin and the wrong things in our lives from ruling over us. I tell you something, if you're having a struggle with some area in your life, whether it be sin, whether it be some area of something ruling over you in a way it shouldn't be, one of the most effective things that you can do is get a little more serious about God's word and believe in the power of God's word to put to death and to dethrone from your life those things that don't belong in your life and should not be ruling over you. So many times, I cannot tell you, having conversations with someone or counseling and you know having some struggle or some life-dominating sin is ruling over somebody's life and you probe just a little bit and you find out there's a very, very small involvement of the word of God in that person's life. It has a very low priority. They don't take it seriously. They're not in the word of God on a regular basis. And one of the first things I try and strongly encourage people to do and get dedicated and disciplined about is not why don't you you know 
try these 12 steps or you know you need to you know go to this program for $13,000 look why don't you start reading your bible every day and memorizing it and obeying it and living it out and believing by faith the power of the word of god like a sword to come into your life and put to death the evil desires and the wrong things that want to rule over you and again I'm not negating the fact that God can't use other things but I'm telling you it's amazing what can happen with the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the sword of the Spirit God's word in someone's life the things that can be dethroned and here they put her to death she's now dethroned removed from ruling over them as she should never have been and verse 17 says Jehoiada then made a covenant between the Lord the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people and all the people of the land they went to the temple of Baal and they tore it down and they thoroughly broke it in pieces its altars and images and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. So again, just again, they're, they're ridding the land now of idolatry. Athaliah was the one who introduced Baal worship. So now they're just completely ridding from themselves these idolatrous and evil influences. And notice, they're doing a very thorough job. There's not passivity about ridding what was idolatry in their midst. And I like this because, you know, when something begins to have an idolatrous influence in our life, it says they thoroughly broke it in pieces. The idea is there was no opportunity to rebuild. Thoroughly got rid of it. And I think that should be our intention. Very diligent when we're seeking to be repentant and remove what's not good from our lives at times. So the priest, it says, then appointed in place the officers over the house of the Lord. And then he took captains of hundreds, the bodyguards and the escorts and all the people of the land. And they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by the way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house. And then he, the seven-year-old young man, then he sat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. And Jehoash, again, another reference, uh, kind of description of the same name with the E and the H in there, same as Joash. Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. So uh, this beautiful experience happens where that which should not have been ruling over them is now dethroned and removed from their presence. And now the rightful king is enthroned to his rightful place of rulership over them. It says, then he sat on the throne. And again, as we look at that, and Jehoash is the picture of their rightful king, God's selected king. You know what? That's exactly what we want in our lives, in our hearts. We want the rightful king to be ruling over our lives. We want Jesus to be on the throne of our hearts. There is a throne, it seems, inside the heart of every human being, and there are a lot of other things that try and rule on that throne. You know, we want to rule our own lives, we want to be in control of ourselves and be our own king, our own ruler, sometimes, you know, some evil and ungodly influence. But look, Jesus is the rightful ruler. And we want Jesus to sit on the throne and to rule and reign and to give him that rightful rulership 
makes all the difference in the world. Because notice, as soon as the rightful king was on the throne, it says, verse 20, all the people of the land did what? They rejoiced and the city was quiet. When the right ruler was enthroned, there was peace and there was joy. That was, that was the byproduct of that. And the same is true in our lives. When Jesus is ruling on my heart the way he's supposed to be, there's a sense of peace within and there's a joy because the rightful king is reigning within. And in the same way in a church or even in a community or in a culture, when there's a good and godly influence ruling and at the helm and the place of rulership, that same thing is the byproduct. You know, the, the, the Bible tells us when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When a wicked person rules, the people groan. And here this beautiful example now is the rightful king is on the throne. The people are experiencing joy and peace and quiet as this seven-year-old young man now, imagine this, now comes to the place as they're celebrating that he's still alive, but he's now the king. Well, chapter 12 gives us a little summary of uh, Jehoash's life. Verses 1 to 3 kind of give us almost like the, the summarization of his life as a whole. It says it was in the seventh year of Jehu, who was reigning in the northern kingdom, that Jehoash became king. And he reigned for 40 years in Jerusalem. So he had quite a long reign. He starts out at seven years old. He has a 40-year-long reign. His mother's name was Zibiah, Beersheba. Verse 2, interesting little insight we get. And Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So take note here. It tells us he comes to the throne at 7. For 40 years he reigns. And it seems that for the better part of those 40 years, he was doing what was good and right in the sight of the Lord. As he gets to the latter end of his reign, after Jehoiada the priest, remember who was the uncle who spared him and hid him in the house of the Lord and raised him in the ways of God and instructed him and kind of mentored him and, and, and gave him tutelage as a young man, instructed him in the ways of God. After Jehoiada dies, we'll see in the latter years of his reign, he kind of then starts to veer off course spiritually. And it's very interesting that verse 2 tells us, look at it again. It says, he did what was right, Jehoiada, in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest was instructing him. In other words, what that's indicating, and history proves itself out, is unfortunately Jehoash never developed, listen, his own spiritual root system. He never developed his own spiritual root system and own personal dedication to the Lord to the extent that he should have. It seems that Jehoiada the priest, who was this very godly man and this wonderful influence who instructed him in the ways of the Lord, was his example and his counselor and his teacher and this constant presence in his life, that Jehoash was drawing all of his spiritual wind from the sails of Jehoiada the priest. And he never himself was in a place where he was firmly rooted and living in dependence upon the Lord himself. Instead, it seems what was taking place is he lived dependent upon the godly influence of another person, Jehoiada the priest. And because of that, Jehoiada the priest kind of became like a spiritual prop in his life. 
And when Jehoiada then died, he was no longer there and present in his life. The prop was taken out and he kind of fell flat on his face spiritually. And he didn't walk with the Lord himself. He didn't carry on. It seems that Jehoiada gave him incentive and gave him influence. And as long as Jehoiada was a part of his life, that kind of was always his incentive. He was encouraged and, and, and enthusiastic because of Jehoiada's interaction with him. But then when that prop was removed, he didn't carry on himself. And look, this is very important because we want to be very, very cautious. Nothing wrong with spiritual encouragement. Nothing wrong with having a, a mentor or somebody who really inspires us to live for the Lord. But sometimes we have to be very careful. And I've seen it play itself out in people's lives where someone will walk with the Lord and kind of serve the Lord as long as their wife is or as long as their husband is. And though they may not consciously say it or recognize it, the reality is the reason they go to church or the reason they read their Bible or the reason they walk with the Lord is because their spouse is their incentive or some person is their incentive. And in a sense, they're living dependent upon the spiritual life of someone else. And they go, oh, that person really inspires me to walk with the Lord. Well, great, but what if that person's not around? How are you going to walk with the Lord? You should be inspired to walk with the Lord whether anybody inspires you or not. <laughs> you know, what does the Bible say? You know, though none go with me, still I will follow. The cross before me, the world behind me. And there's nothing wrong with being encouraged by one another, but we really need to be careful, whether it's the influence of a parent, whether it's the influence of a, of a spouse or someone in our life, or whether it's the influence, again, of someone like Jehoiada the priest, a pastor, a spiritual leader. Look, at any given moment, God can take that prop out of our life. And we're not really to be living dependent upon the spiritual influence of another person. You should want to go to church because you want to go to church. You should have your devotions because you want to have your devotions. Do you understand what I'm saying? You should choose to walk in the Spirit and not live in sin because you love Jesus. Not because, well, I don't want to mess up because then my pastor will be upset or, or then my uh, you know, husband or my wife will be upset with me. So I live this way to, to make them happy. No, no, no. You live for Jesus because you live for Jesus. And, and be very careful because it seems that this became the downfall of Jehoash. Again, this is what the text is implying to us. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest instructing him. But when that stopped, he then continued to not, he did not continue to do what was right in the sight of the Lord because he did not have his own root system and he was not walking, in a sense, in his own fellowship with the Lord. Well, verse 4 tells us that Jehoash, here's one of the good things he did do during the time of his reign, and again, had a lot of uh, good things he did accomplish. His latter years, when Jehoiada died, he kind of went off course, but verse 4 tells us one of the things he did do is he had a heart to repair and restore the house of God, which Athaliah had destroyed, Second Chronicles 24, tells us that she had damaged and defiled the temple. So verse 4 says, Jehoash, who was the king, said to the priests during his reign, all the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, that was something the Hebrews brought, they each brought a, a half shekel of their census money, uh, and all the money a man purposes in his heart, 
to bring into the house of the Lord. So notice there again, it was the idea of there wasn't an obligatory amount. They purposed in their heart of free will what they wanted to give in worship to God and to support the work of God in the temple precincts. Let the priests, he says, take it to themselves, each man from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. And again, at this time, the temple was in disrepair. Second Chronicles 24, as I said, the companion account this tells us that Athaliah had really gone through and ravaged the temple and had stolen things out of the temple. And so for the time of her reign, the temple had fallen into disrepair. It was dilapidated. And, and it's on the heart of this seven-year-old, this king who spent six years. Again, this may not have happened when he was seven, but understand, this had a very fond place in his heart. That was where he was saved for seven years in the temple. And so it's on his heart now. This is horrible. We need to repair God's house. So he says, when we take the money in, we need to start a temple uh, repair project. So verse 6 says, it was so by the 23rd year of King Jehoash that the priests had not yet repaired the damages of the temple. So something led to a delay. The Bible doesn't tell us, but they hadn't started the work yet. So the king called Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said, why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Why are you neglecting what I asked you to do as king? Now, therefore, do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. Now, it doesn't seem there is an accusation per se being uh, kind of put upon them by the king at this point as much as there was obviously something going on perhaps it was they weren't collecting the money that they should they weren't managing the money properly and so at this point he says look why aren't the repairs being done and in essence what they're answering saying is look there's simply not enough to maintain the ongoing affairs of the functions of the temple and also to do repair work and construction projects so as of this point, we won't receive any more money for this building project. And they say, and we're not going to do the project ourselves. We can't manage to do that ourselves if we're to fulfill our obligation as priests with the offerings and the teaching of the people and so forth. So verse 9, Jehoiada implements his own solution as the king. It says Jehoiada, uh, excuse me, Jehoiada the priest uh, implements his solution, trying to please the king, the idea is, took a chest a box, bored a hole in its lid and set it beside the altar. On the right side as one comes in to the house of the Lord. And the priests who kept the door put there all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. So kind of a building fund box is the idea here. It kind of created a separate box and that box was now going to be designated not for the regular offerings and the half shekel and the census temple tax, but this was for anyone who had a heart to donate towards the repairs of the temple. So it was, whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest when it became filled, that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and put it in bags and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And then they gave the money which had been apportioned into the hands of those who did the work. Again, the Bible says the laborer is worthy of his wages. So those who are the construction workers, the stonemasons, those who are doing the repair work, notice they're being compensated now for this 
contracting work that they're doing. Those who had oversight of the house of the Lord, the contractors, the, the general contractors, those overseeing the projects, and they paid it out, it says, to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord and to the masons and the stone cutters. Again, God uses everything. See that? And for the buying timber and hewn stone, buying products, you know, wood and so forth to repair the temple damage of the house of the Lord and for all that was paid out to repair the temple. However, verse 13, there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers and sprinkling bowls and trumpets and articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. In other words, that money wasn't designated particularly for the internal furnishings, the gold and silver implements they used. It was directed specifically for the temple building project, the repair work that needed to be done on the physical structure of the dilapidated temple. They were very clear what the money was to be used for. Verse 14, but they gave that to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, verse 15, they did not require an account from the men in whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to the workmen for they dealt faithfully. Now, very interesting. You notice here, they kind of establish a protocol with sort of a system of accountability. They create this chest, and when the chest becomes full, a few individuals would go over and they would take it out of the bags, not just one person involved, but multiple people involved. That's always good when you're dealing with money, and especially God's money. Multiple people involved, they take the money out, they count it, you know, they're keeping record of it, they're making sure it's being properly dispersed to the people it's supposed to go to. And you want to talk about integrity, and honesty and being upright and above reproach. Verse 15 says, so honest and, and in, you know, faithful in their integrity were they. It says they didn't even require an account from the men who hand delivered the money to the workmen because they dealt so faithfully. The idea is they were so trusted and the men had such integrity and were so honest they had full reliability. They're not going to steal the money. They're not going to... I mean, it just goes to show the heart that was involved in these things and how serious they saw these things to do it in a way that was God-honoring and to be above reproach. Verse 16, the money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. And there, again, the idea there is the differentiation. They made a separation some of the money was being designated to the temple repair project, the regular offerings that were coming in, the temple tax, the census money, that which was prescribed in the law of Moses, that money was not brought to the repair of the house of the Lord. That belonged to the priests. It was money that was used to compensate the priests so that they could be sustained to do their work in the house of God. Well, the end of the chapter here from verse 17 down through the remainder of the chapter, we'll finish this up, but let me just say as a backdrop, if you read 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 17 to 28, it describes the reason and basis why what's happening is happening here, which in essence is because at this point, Jehoiada has now died, and when Jehoiada the priest dies, as I said, Jehoash didn't have the motivation 
to walk with the Lord himself. And so therefore, he started turning to other things, entering into idolatry, listening to wrong counselors. And because he didn't have Jehoiada to keep him anchored, he had no anchor himself and he started to drift spiritually. And because of that, at this point, verse 17 says, Hazel, the king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. And then he set his face to go up to Jerusalem, about 25 miles away from Gath. He starts heading to attack Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, that all the kings of Judah had dedicated, and his own sacred things, and the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord in the king's house, and he sent them to Hazael, king of Syria, then he went away from Jerusalem. So basically, he took all the treasuries of the house of the Lord and he paid off the enemy to basically make him leave and go away. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose, they formed a conspiracy. Again, this was in connection to him turning away. Second Chronicles 24, as I said, fills in some additional details of why these things transpired in the house of Milo, which goes down to Silla, for Josachar, the son of Shimeth, and Jehozabad, sounds like a bad dude, you don't mess with him, sorry, his servants struck him, so he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So take notice, because, again, and let me come back to this point, because Jehoash made the fatal mistake of not establishing his own spiritual root system as soon as that which was feeding into his life was not present in his life any longer, he began to dry up at the roots and ultimately begins to not only find himself becoming vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy, but actually in, starts making bargains with the enemy. He takes the precious things from the house of God. We see him in the story and he's paying off the enemy tribute money to go away, which ultimately doesn't work enemy because the enemy just comes back not too long afterwards and basically says, hey, thanks for the payment and now I'm still going to conquer you. <laughs> and, and, and they fall defeated to Hazael and the king of Syria anyway. And look, it is so important for us to make sure that we establish our own spiritual root system that we're not living dependent in our spiritual life upon someone else. Let me change that. You should be living dependent upon someone is Jesus. That's who you should be living dependent upon because Jesus will be ever present. He will never leave you and never forsake you. And let me say this, I can't promise that for you with another human being. Somebody may abandon you. A pastor might horribly disappoint you and stumble you. Your spouse may die or divorce you or abandon you. A faithful Christian brother may be transferred to another place in the country and they're not there to help you and assist you anymore, but Jesus will always be with you. And so sink your roots into Jesus. Lean on Jesus, walk with Jesus, and do that because it's your choice to do it and not because you have to always be triggered and prompted by some other Christian. Do it because you walk with the Lord and that will bring great stability into your life. Let's stand together.